Welcome to Thriving in the Age of Disruption. In this podcast episode, Dr. Ramesh taps into the rich experience of venture builder, Mr. Go Chulam, also known as CL Go, who is the managing partner of Blue Incube and the CEO and co-founder of Natural Trace. Together, they decode the DNA of successful startups and explore the intricate journey from ideation to thriving business with an emphasis on the importance of an entrepreneurial and crisis-resilient mindset and qualities that propel these startups to success. Startups are a blend of ambition, innovation, and resilience. Founders typically find themselves navigating a challenging path to growth. Investors will seek founders and endeavors that not only offer groundbreaking ideas, but also exhibit certain qualities signaling long-term success. So do join Dr. Ramesh and CL as we delve into the founder's vision and the investor's perspective. For both aspiring entrepreneurs and investors seeking the next big opportunity, we hope this conversation will offer you valuable insights. Welcome to the Thriving in the Age of Disruption podcast series, CL. I'm excited to have this conversation with you, and I thought that we could start off by having you introduce yourself. Thank you, Ramesh, for interest in interviewing me, and again, appreciate your time. I'm a born-bred Singaporean. I'm enjoying uh, my late 50s working with startups in the technology and advanced manufacturing space. I came from a family of small SME businessmen and graduated a double E degree. I joined the hard disk drive industry in the 90s, founded my equipment company in my 30s, two decades ago. And I'm fortunate to have worked with some of the most respected corporate and business leaders in the industry. I'm now managing partner of Blue Incube Ventures specialty industrial B2B, a venture builder and investor working with founders. And we are also fortunate to have Enterprise Singapore as a partner. That's basically what I'm doing. Share a little bit about yourself personally. I'm an avid golfer. My wife, Shirley, and me, we have three kids. Our daughter, 29 years old, is a doctor practicing in Auckland, New Zealand. Wow. My second daughter, she's actually a junior creative art director in multinational advertising firm. And then my boy, EJ, is actually going to Army. So it's been a fun journey so far. Wonderful. Uh, I wanted to ask you about venture building and what does that really mean? Venture building, it's actually not new. I would look at it differently because we started as actually angel investor after I left the corporate world. And I started angel investing and then I discovered that it's no fun putting money and then not knowing, not being involved and not being able to work with the team. And I really like engagement, like what I had before, right? B2B, dealing with businesses. And I felt that when I start working with some of these startups, B2B is a very different space. I think B2C is one where their youth and the current trend of things matters a lot. B2B, we find that the startups, because of their limited working experience, they may not be able to assess C-level or even achieve the hygiene factor. Why would a customer procure from a startup and how to deal with those hygiene factors? So we felt that this is where our experience could make a difference. And so that's why we, over time, consolidated some of those investments that we made as an angel investor and then group them under Blue and Cube Ventures. Our partners are essentially very focused on what we can do as a value add to the ventures. We hope that we could improve the chances of success for the ventures we work with. We have recently also discovered change in trends. Because of the business transformation 
we look at venture building not solely from a startup perspective, but we felt that there are struggling traditional business that are also trying to transform themselves. And mm-hmm. those mindset that is required are actually quite natural for a startup, right? Because I'm also doing corporate advisory M&A activities for some of the mature industry. We felt that they're actually doing the same thing, agile thinking and trying to rethink their industry. So I think that's pretty exciting for me. It is actually a very interesting time right now in Singapore, especially since the first wave of businesses, whether they are small, medium-sized, they would be all coming up for succession planning now to the next gen. And some of them don't necessarily want to hand over to their family members. Some of them are anyway corporatized. Finding the next generation to take over would be an appropriate time. But that also requires then the handing over of the networks and the real expertise that is in someone's head and might not be actually captured anywhere in the business processes because companies in the past might not have captured them in knowledge management and other tools. Do you deal with such traditional companies as well? Yes, of course. But I think as with all startup, you have to start with your founders or the team that are willing to change. I think it is very difficult for us to try to make them change. That's right. I think the mindset for change is certainly one that we have to help. Sometimes I joke that I can change the SME. I cannot make a Tauke become someone that is not. How do I transform my company's future, right? Uh, it's not so much as they themselves as individuals. I think as long as they can decouple that, then I think we have a fair chance of working it, right? Decoupling is the tough part, right? The decoupling between the entrepreneur and, and the company founder is probably something that was quite unique for my journey because I always decouple. I always encourage my customers to do business with my company, not just me as an individual. That kind of helps how I organize and look at things. Oh, very interesting. Singaporean companies can have a fixation almost to grants. And if there are no grants, they don't want to do any work, right? To think about the future and to move ahead. I take pride. And that over the years that I've actually not built businesses dependent on grants. But obviously at the right time during the COVID crisis, that's where government help becomes very important. We are talking about the survival of a business. So I think that's when it makes sense. But every time I go to a round table, sometimes the traditional companies will always ask for incentives. They will ask for labor relief. To me, when you start with that mindset, you start not being able to improve go forward, right? We have to realize that we are competing in the global industry. So that's why a business plan built around grants is a good bonus to have, but we don't think we highly about that. Yeah. How I define entrepreneurial mindset, I say that it's a mindset where one is being resourceful in life. So you're able to define your problem and define it correctly. Number two is that you're able to take risks and manage uncertainty. And lastly, the ability to create value, which is not just for yourself and not just financial, but also for all the stakeholders and in other aspects. So you've been an entrepreneur, you're now working with entrepreneurs. And when you look at your own journey and how you navigated the ups and downs, what is it that you want to share with our listeners about entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial mindset? I came from a family of humble and small businessmen and businesswomen. So going into business is quite natural. 
I remember my mom, a Cantonese lady, are really good in business. So he said that if you start early, you can afford to fail twice. So, the first time I heard that. So that's when I was actually really contemplating whether to start my company. I was already quite independent at 16 years old. I was studying in Toronto and in US for four or five years. And then again, subsequently starting work in the multinational as an engineer responsible for a lot of stuff. I think what is important is actually being curious and being willing to take more, especially during the early part of your career, you really have nothing to lose. Whether you are thinking of entrepreneurial or actually trying to do well, I think it's better to do it earlier. But I also told my founders today, they're quite fortunate, right? Because mm-hmm. most of them are highly qualified. They either have PhD, have master's degree. I say your safety net is pretty high. So I wouldn't mm-hmm. worry about you falling. Imagine being an entrepreneur 30 years ago. When you fail, essentially that goes your career as well. So it is quite different. So my motivation to them is that yeah, if your safety net is pretty high and three, five years is something that uh, you could afford. I spent a few years of my savings to finance my own business. I went for honeymoon with my wife. And she left earlier because I have to stay in U.S. for technology transfer. I start my company. I think that these are the kind of attributes that I like to see from the entrepreneur, right? Money doesn't create those motivations, right? It's really that you are really interested in doing something. And so that's really what I look out for. Excellent. So in your journey, you saw that it was an advantage to having started early. And number two was to be curious about the world and what's happening and changing. Three was also to take more responsibility, especially when you're young and early on in your corporate life or in whichever area that you're working, because then you are just learning. You pointed out something interesting that 30 years ago, for a lot of people, the safety net was really not there, especially since we may not be so highly educated when we started off on the entrepreneurial journey, but now with lots of these tech founders who have got their PhDs. Actually, it's no sweat because if they fail, they can go back. So it's almost like taking three to five years off to go and explore and be independent and to be willing to make your own personal sacrifices, whether it is to put your own money in or to give up, like you said, your honeymoon period at some point to stay on in the U.S. to do a technology transfer because that was what you had to do as part of the business. Thank you for highlighting some of the things that as an entrepreneur, you've had to challenge yourself. But I love what your mother said about if you start early, you can fail twice. My mother tells me that failure is the pillar in the house of success. So in some ways, I think both of us have a positive or an empowering context around failure. It's no big deal. It's something you have to do. And if you had to deal with it, just deal with it. Yes, and you have the capacity to do so when you're young. That's right. Because you don't have that many responsibilities and other burdens that you have to deal with when you are much older. Just to add, one of the things I observe is that the opportunity cost that the entrepreneur see becomes very real, right? Mm-hmm. Because he could start the venture when he's 30 and I say he reached closer to 40. I think the opportunity cost among the peers weighs on them. It is something that we have to take note of because they'll be comparing against similar PhD, maybe director somewhere doing some high paying job and they would have spent the last seven years working on their ventures. So the opportunity cost is also an area that they will have to consider. That's right. So if you are trying to become an entrepreneur today and you're highly educated, 
then there is a push factor. Unless, of course, you're really motivated to become an entrepreneur. This whole thriving in the age of disruption was about what can be the critical mindsets that we need to have to survive change and to thrive, actually. And I thought that one was entrepreneurial mindset. And the second one is actually crisis-ready mindset. And I define crisis as a kind of setback or failure that we experience. But in that moment when we experience it, what do we do? Do we just sit back? Do we freeze or do we take action? Share with us how you've dealt with crisis in your life and what have been the practices that you have adopted that has been instrumental in having you be calm and collected. We've known each other for a few years. You've always been very calm. Nothing really makes you too excitable. So please do share that with us. Thanks. Obviously, it's good to have a peace of mind in that your sense of purpose at this stage of my life is quite well rehearsed to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. So I think in a world that is changing, and I just recently attended a Hyper Island Masters of Arts in Digital Management, talking about exactly that, right? How do you develop adaptive leadership mindset? So you're always uh, dealing with change. You always uh, will be leading with teams, working with team of people in a collaborative environment uh, remotely. How do you build trust? How do you share? These are also areas that I'm learning as well because we come from 30 years ago, the hierarchical rank organization structure. What I'm realizing last few years from working with startups and also from my recent classes is that I think the adaptive leadership and accepting this is the unknown. And I, I think being prepared, that is the case, keeps you calm. It allows you to make the adjustment I told startup also because the business plan that normally they presented to us and the plan one year or six months later will change, right? Yes. We don't know. Yeah, if we're going to measure them purely based on what they present to us as a rationale purely for investment, then I think we're in the wrong space. It's probably better being in the private equity, dealing with mature company with very yes. predictable business and, and then valuing them. So I don't get angry or I don't get disappointed when suddenly the business plan wasn't exactly down to the numbers. We have to be mentally prepared that that is the case. Then the founder will understand that he is working with someone that understood what the founder will have gone through. That's right. Part of the crisis-ready mindset or adaptive mindset is being mentally prepared and this ability to make adjustments because things are going to change, life happens. But more importantly, also to set the right expectation for ourselves. So if you work with a startup, have the expectation that everything is not cast in stone. They'll have to keep pivoting and changing their business plan as they progress. And if we're looking for more certainty than as an investor or even as an employee, we want to work for a more established company because they may not have those kind of big changes in very short time. Yes, precisely. And and the other point is that the founders or the team, their situation awareness has to be 10x. It's very difficult if the founders or even management only show up on investor meeting, but then he doesn't know a lot about their business, their competition, the pricing, technology, problems. I used to flip the hardware catalogs in the toilet, trying to be 10x more aware yes. of situation. So Situation awareness is something that I expect because then it allows you to make better decisions than anybody else. 
this is a very important part. Yes, there will be changes, right? Because how do you react to those changes depend on what is your appreciation of landscape, the situation you're in. So I like to see from the founding team that they are always aware of their situation and uh, the environment that they are in. That's both great advice and a great sharing of your own experience because if the one thing that you have to prepare for what's going to happen or change is actually knowing what's happening already and uh, reading uh, magazines, books and newspapers and talking to people would be part of that. I've worked with some founders who can be quite disconnected to the reality of uh, what's happening on the ground and how they perceive themselves is more of, I've got this great product and therefore it is number one, or I'm this great person and therefore this product is a great service. We right? see that a lot. You uh, do. Yeah, we do see that a lot because <laughs> a lot of very solution-centric founders, right? Because of the limited working experience, their repertoire of problem statements and appreciation of the problems may not be as broad and as deep. Right. So that's quite common, but that's something that we... As venture builder, also try to help, right? In that we know that you come with solution, but do we understand the problems that you're trying to solve? You talked about peace of mind and sense of purpose, and how does that connect with your life? I have certain priorities that I have to lead a healthy life, but ultimately, why is health important? So that we can actually benefit our family, our friends, to enjoy. A quality of life with family and friends and being able to select work that we chose to do that we enjoy and also in the process enjoy the world around us so that's basically what the purpose for me have been yeah basically that's it yeah and it's just focusing on the things that are important yeah and i review it actually on a monthly basis basically to lead a life of quality by keeping healthy so as to enjoy and contribute to the life experience of my family and friends. Yes. Okay, perfect. Do you think it's possible for us to live a simple life? Uh, yes, I think so. I ask myself, what does happiness mean, right? So, and happiness to me means traveling with Shirley and family, experiencing the world, playing golf with my good friends, being healthy to do the two above item, Knowing that my children are doing what they love to do and are financially independent, surely being happy with life and reading a nice book in a most comfortable place could be a simple life. Walking in the greenery in the morning with a smile on your face, to me, that's simple but precious. That's right. Simple but precious. And if you had to use three words to describe thriving, how would you describe it? Thriving, you can sense it. You can sense it through momentum and also fun. When environment is thriving, it tends to be a fun environment to be in and certainly joy. So I think when I look at it, ultimately it still boils down to momentum. If you have the flow, you're in a zone. Yeah, that's wonderful. In the zone. We define sustainability in our work as mm -hmm. the ongoing thriving of a living system. That's when someone has the self-awareness to understand that everything that we do or don't do is interrelated and interconnected with other people and other things. And sometimes it may even have an 
intended consequence to something that we thought was great, but uh, someone else is impacted by it. Uh, today, of course, sustainability includes uh, the SDG goals, climate crisis. You're actually pretty involved and you, I think, have an investment in that area as well. Yep. But what is sustainability for you personally? For me personally, old school way is that it is about leaving a place cleaner and better than when you first found it. I look at the Japanese when they clear the soccer stadium, whether they win or lose, it's actually by habit. Ultimately, if you have a sustainable habit, then you will actually contribute sustainability movement. That's great. You're the first one who's actually introduced this phrase to me, sustainability habit. We talk about sustainability as a mindset. And you're right. If I reflect now on my various trips to Japan, even well before the sustainability movement, they were doing their recycling. They were very conscious about how they consume. Yeah. Sustainability by habit. Okay, I'm going to ask you questions. They are fast-paced. Just say the okay. first word that comes to mind, right? Don't overthink it. Okay. The first one is, what's your favorite book? I thought we have it. Okay, great. What's your favorite travel destination? Japan. Oh, and if you could have dinner with anyone, who could it be? Oh, obviously it'll be my mom, but she passed away in 2018. Yeah. Well, I got it. And what's your guilty pleasure? I'm not sure if it's guilty pleasure, but golf keeps me healthy too. What's the most unusual food that you have tried? I don't know. I think it was in Texas and they call it Texas oyster, but it's actually part of a cow or something like that. Really? Wow. What is the best advice that you've ever received? The best advice that I've ever received was actually very cliche because it actually came out of a poster in a gift shop that says, live simple, dream big, be grateful, give love and love lots. You'll see that poster somewhere in Australia or some of the gift shops. And and actually, I do reflect at that to my purpose. And what's the worst advice that you've ever received? I think the way to think about advice is that you shouldn't think that there's the worst advice that you ever received. It's whether you decide to take action on that. You can say that advice is a feedback and feedback is a gift. Yeah, that's true. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Memory. CL, I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being on this podcast with me. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks, Ramesh. Thank you very much. All right, take care. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dr. Ramesh and CL, for sharing with our listeners what it takes to excel in the art of venture building and the key factors that drive entrepreneurial innovation and achievement. Whether you're an aspiring entrepreneur or investor looking for inspiration to overcome the challenges in your life or simply curious about the stories that shape the change makers of our world, this podcast series is your gateway to a world of insight and inspiration. Be sure to subscribe to the Thriving in the Age of Disruption podcast or follow Dr. Ramesh on LinkedIn and other social media so you too become a part of Dr. Ramesh's Thriving Network.